Welcome to your Actives Tech Brief podcast. My name is Luca Bertuzzi, your technology editor. This week, we take a closer look at the standardization process in Europe and how it will relate to the AI Act. For an overview on all things technology in the EU, sign up to our free newsletter or visit the website youractive.com. This is your Actives Tech Brief podcast. Today I'm joined by Connor Dunlop, European Public Policy Lead at the Ada Lovelace Institute, and Jan Rampala, Policy Advisor at Business Europe. Hello both. Hi Luca, great to be on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Hi Luca, yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you for being with us. Um, so Jan, uh, I'll pass the floor to you now to to uh, sort of frame the discussion about the AI Act and, and te- technical standards in particular. To what extent are technical standards important uh, for the implementation of the AI regulation? I mean, the short answer is they're going to be extremely important. Uh, if you look at standards in general, I'd argue this is probably one of the hidden engines of the integration of the single market. Um, and To understand why that is, you sort of need to have a bit of background into how standards work. So just like a quick explainer. And of course, there's always quirks and nuances in how the system works. But the general gist is, of course, you know, you have your EU legislation. So that defines out your political objectives and that details your essential requirements. And traditionally, that goes around health and safety. So what a manufacturer needs to meet in order to comply with it. And to help in that, the commission can then go and request from the European standardization organizations to elaborate on that requirement with a harmonized European standard. Uh, So these standards basically are really complementary to the legislation. And what's really important to know is that they're voluntary. So you don't need a standard to comply with the legislation's essential requirements, but it makes life easier. Uh, And why is that? So two reasons, really. One, it's because when you have this sort of harmonized standard, uh, any conflicting national standard is withdrawn. Thus, you have really one standard across the single market. And that that practicality is super helpful for business uptake. And it's also manifested by this other concept called the presumption of conformity that kicks in. Uh, So this essentially means if you comply and have European harmonized standard that's been fully cited in the official journal of the EU, which is this official record of public or legal notices, you're granted this presumption that your product is compliant with the respective essential requirements. So, you know, what does that mean for the AI Act, right? So you have your hypothetical example, you know, imagine, you know, you're a startup trying to make it big in the EU, except there's one really small problem. Let's say every member state wants you to log how your data is collected differently and according to their specific criteria. Well, I think we can probably agree that sounds really expensive if you're going to be doing that across all the member states. And for a startup, that could be really death-inducing, potentially. So, you know, at a best case, you could have a really good idea and get bought out by a larger company, which could even be an overseas one. And so, voila, you know, thriving, healthy competition. Uh, But jokes aside, I'd say uh, it's exactly why standards are important, both for businesses and societally. Um, you know, the standards are a massive compliance cost saver and society for it's important for, for them to see businesses not treat them as sort of a get out of jail free card for, for compliance. Um, so just quickly on, on the last point there, you know, the AI Act, their essential requirements that these standards are going to be looking to meet um, are focused around the high risk AI systems under Title Three. 
And if we take a look at the handful of standardization deliverables that are currently on the table and going to be discussed by the San Senelet guys, um, and notably Etsy there is, is in an interesting position, uh, we'll, we'll finally also be seeing these deliverables uh, around 2025. But this is really where the rubber is going to be hitting the road, as we say. So if you have a delay on these standardization deliverables, you're going to have a massive delay on actually how the AI Act is being implemented. So if we just list out a bit of what's going to be discussed, you know, they're, they're looking right now at risk management systems, governance and quality data sets, quality management for, for providers, accuracy, accuracy specifications. Uh, you know, these are essential pieces to making the AI Act actually work and function for a business to take up. So it's really important also that discussions at that level are well honed. And of course, you know, when you're trying to think about that being applied to say a product like, I don't know, chat GPT, you know, how do you figure that out at a technical level, right? It's not really a wonder then that these discussions can take years to, to figure out. So in the end, I'd say, you know, no, no pressure. It's not like we have a lot riding on these standards. Thanks, Jan, for that overview. And um, moving to you, Connor, um, the Ada Lovelace Institute has recently published a paper on the need to better include civil society in the standard setting process for the AI Act. Uh, can, can you give us an overview of, of your argument? There is a risk that there will be a regulatory gap uh, created by how the AI Act is approaching standards. Um, this is basically because, as, as Jan mentioned, technical standards are being used to clarify and implement the Act's essential requirements or the high-risk requirements. And uh, one of the main conclusions of our research was that technical standards uh, will be unlikely to be able to address the legal and political questions that arise when looking at the essential requirements of the AI Act. Um, so yeah, this could create a regulatory gap because some fundamental rights and other public interests may be unprotected. Um, so yeah, maybe to take a step back though and, uh, and look at what the EU is trying to do with the AI Act. Um, the starting point, the, the commission said was, um, among other things to offer protection of EU citizens, fundamental rights. So what does that mean, uh, in terms of the standard setting process? Um, as Jan mentioned. Uh, they are currently looking at uh, high-risk obligations in standard setting bodies, such as Article 9 on risk management. Uh, and within that, there would be uh, a requirement for the standard setting bodies to try and deem an acceptable level of risk uh, of an AI system to fundamental rights, health and safety before it's deployed on, on the market. So to us, that is a question with fundamental rights implications. It's not purely a technical question. Um, another example might be if you look at Article 15 uh, and sort of uh, the determination of what level of or what what level of accuracy is acceptable for an AI system before it's deployed on the market. Um, we also see that as a question that has societal implications, not just uh, a sort of computational or mathematical uh, question. Um, so yeah. What does that mean um, in terms of the standard development bodies who are working on these questions? Uh, our paper concludes that there seems to be a lack of expertise and legitimacy to make those questions that touch on fundamental rights issues um, to just for the decisions to be taken by um, standard setting bodies. Um, so yeah, to kind of wrap that up, uh, we think that could 
main fundamental rights and other public interests uh, go unprotected, uh, and this would undermine one of the AI Act's key objectives. Um, so yeah, if I have, if I can expand briefly on um, the paper, that was kind of how we identified the problem. Uh, and then the paper also looks at what can be done to address this. So um, we see two broad approaches that the, that the EU could consider. The first is to boost civil society participation in the standard setting process. Uh, and secondly, uh, there could be a way to introduce institutional innovations that would increase democratic control uh, over essential requirements in the AI Act. Let's move back to, to Jan now, because uh, there are several elements to unpack there. So first of all, Jan, uh, what is the business perspective on, on this discussion? Um, because uh, the industry is always uh, quite jealous of standard setting, saying this should be an industry-driven process. But does, does the fact that then you have technical standard dealing with such sensitive uh, topic change the picture there. Yeah, no, thank you. I, th- I think it's a really important to also acknowledge uh, that fact. And I think the the report on fundamental rights specifically also sort of even hints in a way at some of the unease that industry is is having um, even, even with some of these questions, right? If, if you look actually through through the report that was published, I mean, Connor, some of your interviewees, you know, they're fr- from the industry side, they're not rubbing their hands together thinking, you know, oh, we can unroll our, our plans to figure out, you know, how we're we going to now operationalize what we consider fair and what isn't. Uh, you know, there, there's a very clear no thank you. This is inappropriate for us to consider, uh, I think. So it, it shows even some, you know, ethical concerns from from the industry side um, with, with the interview interviewees that you were having. So it's, you know, a question that we're also grappling with, I think, with industry. But I, I think the question of participation overall is one that's much larger than, than the AI Act. Uh, but it needs to be said, you know, without the participation of what's so-called Annex 3 organizations, without civil society and consumers, standards lose legitimacy, right? You need a good composition of experts around the table. You, you need the right team, period. Um, but the inclusion part isn't solved in the AI Act. It's symptomatic, like I was saying, of a bigger piece of the puzzle that is related to how the standardization regulation, which governs how standards work, uh, is established here. And to be maybe a bit provocative here, you know, standards can fail for any number of reasons. But the important thing is that the people in the room are actually dedicated to the project at hand because it's people that drive the work, personalities, etc. So how you chair and handle a meeting has just as big an impact on the success of a standard at that human aspect. Uh, there's actually a really good sort of article on this. It's by Carl Cargill called Why Standardization Efforts Fail. And he writes it in 2011. It's from the super U.S. perspective, but he talks a lot about the human behavioral aspects. And I think he has a very sort of interesting way of looking at it because he notes, you know, the failure of standardization you know, we can look at it from the metric, the usual metric of is your standard implemented or not? But what if it's also from the question of did the participants achieve their goals from participating in the process? You know, he has a, a fun quote there. Standards names can vary, but human nature doesn't. Um, but back, I think, to, to the larger question as well. Uh, it was also really encouraging to see the European Parliament's own initiative report on standardization, which was voted on uh, in committee, I believe, last week or so, uh, which took on on board a lot of language for expanding access to civil society, which was you know super you know good good to hear, but also the sort of unfortunate 
ugly truth that when it comes to standardization is that this is expensive, right? It requires full-time staff and, and resourcing investments from the participating organizations. And those are two factors that hurt the smaller players, both industry and societal players. Um, but, and it's probably an arguable key reason why standardization is, you know, considered this industry led area. You can always make a business case internally for participating in a technical group. It's your product that's at stake. Um, and of course, standards are developed by consensus. So it's also important we don't turn participation into the sort of witch hunt of who should be in the room. Uh, that goes not just for finding you know, more uh, consumer or civil society orgs to be in the room, but also take, for example, even foreign companies. You know, We talked about the AI Act context here, but there's another political layer to factor in, and, and that goes back to the standardization regulation. And what I was saying earlier with the AI Act being symptomatic um, the way that the standardization regulation works, it's setting the ground rules for, for who gets to participate, these governance issues. Um, but it also includes this issue of participation. And this is tied in actually with the commission's sort of recent 2022 standardization strategy, which was rightly trying to point out the commission needs to be a bit more strategic and leading in standards. The oft-repeated sort of mantra you'll hear is that Europe should be a standard setter, not a taker, which is great. And that sounds good. But what does that mean in practice? Uh, And the way that they were practically trying to introduce this was with a targeted amendment to the regulation that was going through uh, the co-legislative process around last year. And this was really looking to restrict um, how some voting rights and decisions were undertaken at the at the European standardization organization level to the point where we were really worried this would be actually stripping non-EU participants of voting rights in certain instances, uh, even going so far down as to a technical level. Uh, so it's one thing to be able to have all these EU decision makers only making that decision at a strategic level. But if you're even removing non-EU players at a technical level where you're just trying to operationalize how the standard works... We think that's a really bad direction to go in because, A, we you know have a shortage of experts. We can't just be kicking you know everyone out because we just simply don't have enough people in the room to, to figure this out. But also it decouples us from our international obligations and partners. And that's a, a really tough balance to, to sort of figure out as well. Uh, so one of the, the big issues, and I think also the report talks about there, is you know what to do with with the the standardization regulation in general. And that's a topic we'll probably be dealing with under the next mandate because the evaluation for this regulation is underway right now. So, I mean, we have to figure out, I think, very, very carefully in the next couple of years, you know, what exactly do we want, not just from the AI Act's ability to, to have participation, but how does that structure look in general uh, under the regulation of, of 1025? I would like to pick up what you said that the AI Act is is uh, uh, symptomatic of a broader, uh, decade-long uh, concern that there is not enough civil society participation. You could also say SME participation to standardization bodies. So, Connor, um, you you mentioned you have recommendations for policymakers. Uh, what more can be done in this regard? I agree with a lot of the points that Jan is there. Um, I think. No one wants to see a, a witch hunt, but I think um, more can certainly be done to um, increase the diversity of viewpoints um, and sort of representation of, of public interest in standard setting. Um, and yeah, I, I also note uh, Jan saying that it is expensive uh, for to participate, um, whether it's for SMEs, startups, um, and also for civil society as well. Um, this seems to be sort of the heart 
of the of the issue beyond just AI standard setting. Um, really, it's resource constraints. Um, so yeah, related to that, in our paper, we we heard a lot from uh, participants in JTC twenty one and other standard setting uh, bodies that there's a lot of barriers to meaningful participation. Uh, and some some examples of these barriers include uh, the the amount uh, and the level of time commitment. Uh, the opacity and the complexity of the standardization process, uh, and finally also um, the dominance of industry voices once you get into that process. Um, basically, just often it's the case that public interest-focused organizations are vastly outnumbered and outvoted um, by some industry players. So that was what we were hearing in our interviews as the sort of buyers. Um, but we do indeed then have some recommendations uh, also relating to what Jan was saying around the, the regulation on European standardization. So the first recommendation that we have to increase uh, participation and diversity of viewpoints in standard setting is um, to fund more individuals from civil society organizations, uh, particularly using uh, stand ICT grants. So these are grants that the Commission offers um, to allow um, standardization experts to join standards development. Um, but we think one good, one good option here would be to uh, widen the eligibility criteria uh, to encourage applications for these grants from fundamental rights experts. Um, a second option, and, and, and Jan, you mentioned this, is uh, relating to the Annex 3 organizations in the Regulation on European Standardization. Uh, we think that uh, a good first step could be to also widen um, sort of the categories of Annex 3 organizations who are eligible for funding. Um, right now, um, it's great that there uh, is a requirement for consumer rights groups, SMEs, workers' rights groups uh, to be consulted under um, the, Annex 3, uh, the Annex 3 list, um, but we actually think this could um, this could be widened further to also consider other public interest experts. Uh, and yeah, the third recommendation we have for increasing civil society participation in the process would be to create or fund a central hub to support um, participation. So in our research, we find that um, ANEC, uh, who work on um, yeah consumer, they're the consumer voice in standardization, and also the European Trade Union Confederation, for example, they're already doing a lot of work to facilitate uh, contributions from subject matter experts to standard setting. Um, but we think that good work should basically be institutionalized and cent centralized uh, at EU level. So if you're an individual um, with subject matter expertise, you can go uh, to one place and find everything that you need to start engaging with the standard setting process, uh, should you be willing to. Thanks, Connor. And um, Jan, before you were mentioned the European standardization strategy and the fact that the Commission is currently looking on the uh, uh, standardization regulation. Um, but you also mentioned that there are some potential pitfalls um, and risks related to uh, overstepping into this process. So can, can you elaborate uh, on on what is that the commission should stay away from and why? In a nutshell, it's this 
anxiety and, and, and worry that that industry has on the prescriptiveness that, that the commission comes out with for, for standardization in general and sort of the, the, the timing and deadlines that, that come along with this. Now, I, I want to stress from my sort of informal understanding of how the AIAC standards have been done, there seems to be general consensus from people in the room that these this is a good example, actually, of the Commission and the European Standardization Organizations working well ahead uh, of time to try and make these requests as smooth as possible. And my understanding is at least there was a good bit of pre-discussion ahead of things. So, I mean, that sounded like it was good collaborative dialogue. And, you know, if, if that turned out to really be the case, then that's a very promising way to do about it. Um, but really, I mean, what we're worried about is this prescriptiveness and, and standardization requests can is just sort of, a, again, another symptomatic of, of intervention in a way. Um, because unfortunately, you know, as we were saying, standardization costs money. So the more time you're spending in the room developing this, the more money is being spent and the bigger risk of being delays, uh, of delaying your standard uh, happens in a way. And what can happen is if you have these really prescriptive standardization requests, you can end up, you know, developing a backlog, which by the way, we do have in standards. So, so there are backlogs of standards that are waiting to be published, um, which at the time can represent really state-of-the-art solutions. But by the time that we actually get them out and, and usable and presumption of conformity hits, uh, an international standard can develop that's way ahead of it. So, you know, you, no one wants to be investing two plus years of work and money into something that ends up not making it. Um, and this is, I think, goes into another sort of contentious issue there um, with, with the prescriptiveness of standards. And that is, you know, do you consider EU standards law? Uh, so this is really con- contentious right there. Um, you know, so far, standards operate on the mechanism that they are voluntary. But over the years, we've seen the slow creep of case law putting standards into this sort of pseudo legal zone. And this really came to light, actually, with the ECJ's case uh, around what's called James Elliott, which was over construction products. Uh, so if the GDPR has Schrems, then I would say standards has James Elliott to, to contend with. And what I'm going to say sort of next is already also pretty controversial because it comes down to exactly how one interprets that ruling. So off of our side, uh, off of industry side, and also the the ESO side, so so the standardization organizations, the European ones, um, we say that you know James Elliott, sure, it can confirm that standards are law, but only in the sector specific instance of the construction sector, due to the specificities of how that regulation works out. The Commission, however, on the other hand, interprets this ruling as a standards is law, full stop. So regardless of sector specific, um, you know, nuances. And as a result of that, we argue that the commission has started to become really worried about being held liable for standards, which is reasonable if you think about it, because, you know, anyone reasonable faced with extra burdens of liability is probably going to become very cautious and get a bit prescriptive with what they're asking people to do for them. Right. So this, we say, has led to this entirely new new process in standardization that's duplicating a lot of the work done and introducing a new layer of checks into the system. And that's also a very contentious area uh, between the the two systems that have sort of approached, but I'm not really going to get into that because I don't think we have time to do that. Uh, Then I think the, the last point that we're also a bit worried about when it comes to prescriptiveness is how this also relates to this this area of common specifications. Uh, so this is a mechanism that the commission can use as, as sort of a safety net option when a harmonized standard doesn't exist or is deemed insufficient. So you have this possibility under the AI Act even. If you're not able to get a standard out, um, there are 
backlogs happening, then the commission can sort of issue the, these common specifications out. And this is theoretically supposed to allow you to at least get something onto the market and let businesses working on it. On paper, you know, that sounds like a, a very nice thing to have and it can be really useful. But what we're really concerned about is these common specifications are starting to pop up in other pieces of legislation and there isn't really a common understanding or wording for how these can be used. So what we're really concerned about is that these can just be sort of blanketly used arbitrarily under various pieces of legislation without real consistency and industry doesn't really know how to react to to how these common specifications can be used. Um, Plus they could lead to maybe misaligning, you know, the technical solutions that are happening. So I'm worried really in a way that, especially for the AI Act, you know, if you're starting to make uh, amendments to, to the AI Act text itself and common specifications seem like this very tempting option to try and solve some problems with, say, backlogs or, or fundamental rights even, um, that's not going to provide you a, a stable solution in, in the long run. It's more like a rough attempt to, to patch a hole. Circling back on the AI Act, uh, we have seen that this seems to be a sort of broader problem related to to standard setting and and harmonized standards for the EU market in general. Uh, but what can be done uh, on a piece of legislation that will be so consequential in terms of fundamental rights in the EU? And so, more specifically, what what can be done? Uh, Connor, to avoid uh, these pitfalls for for the AI Act? Yeah, I think there are two possible options for institutional innovations. And one of them is the common specifications that Jan mentioned um, as a concern. Um, from our perspective, we actually do see some promise in at least exploring how common specifications could look in the AI Act, um, because we think that's possibly a useful way to address uh, the safety and fundamental rights questions that may not adequately be covered by the technical standards currently in development. Um, so, yeah, I think that's something that we should consider exploring already in the AI Act. Um, there is a remit for the AI board, which will be set up under the AI Act uh, to that, to issue, they, they're allowed to issue re- opinions or recommendations uh, relating to technical specifications and essential requirements so already there seems to be a mechanism there where possibly an AI board um, could support the Commission in Development Common Specifications for these issues um, that really touch on fundamental rights, potentially like the ones I mentioned around um, data governance or accuracy uh, and robustness. Um, and yeah, I think if something like this would be explored, it would be a really interesting way to possibly increase democratic legitimacy uh, because you can imagine the AI board consulting civil society organizations uh, and possibly even also affected persons um, to really take a holistic approach to the standard setting um, under the AI Act. Um, because I think, yeah, it does require, there's a strong argument for it having a, a, a sort of special approach to standards, given the implications for fundamental rights that you mentioned, Luca. Um there's one other institutional uh, innovation that we think should also be considered, uh, and that is to have a benchmarking institute. Um, that could also be one mechanism to look at some of these uh, questions that the JTC21 uh, and Sen may not be able to answer. 
Um, so this was first floated by the ITRE committee in the European Parliament, uh, specifically to look at um, acceptable levels of risk, accuracy and robustness from AI systems before deployment. So, yeah, an independent uh, benchmark institute might be uh, a more effective mechanism to answer some of those questions um, than the current standard setting process. Um, so, yeah, I think those those two things could be promising uh, in terms of institutional innovations. Uh, and if time allows, I would maybe like to add one more point because we've been very um, uh, focused on the question of, of, of standards only in this conversation. But uh, I think it is important to note also um, that, you know, fundamental rights aren't fixed in time, uh, similar to AI systems. They, they're not fixed in terms of their capabilities. They can learn and develop throughout their life cycle. So I think that's just to underline that, you know, using only technical standards um, is not going to be a silver bullet uh, to offer fundamental rights protections. So that's why I think there is other mechanisms that can be considered, um, such as such as fundamental rights impact assessments. Um, and also we could consider uh, pre-market verification, um, such as what we see in the digital services act we could have some uh some mechanism to assess models for systemic risks or fundamental rights implications even before deployment um so yeah i think really taking a holistic and end end to end approach to fundamental rights protections could also be considered beyond just standards Jan Rampala is policy advisor at Business Europe. Connor Dunlop is European public policy lead at the Ada Lovelace Institute. Thank you both. That's all we got time for this week. Don't forget to sign up to our free Tech Brief newsletter to stay on top of tech news and digital policy developments in the EU and beyond. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast published on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Amazon Music. This episode was produced with the technical help of Jonas Hellebwick. I'm your Luca Bertuzzi and thank you for listening. <music>